Scripture reading for today is from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and is page number 660 in the Pew Bibles. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of the Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who call us by His own glory and goodness. Through this, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the war caused by evil desires. Someone new among us now, I understand. Where is, where is this beautiful baby? She's eating. Oh, she's eating. Okay. Well then. Oh, God be with me now. <laughs> well, we will do this later. And uh, sorry, you didn't know that was coming. And I didn't know that was happening, so... All right. Participating in God's life is where we're at today. Let me just read this. This comes from a book by uh, Leonard Allen, who is a theologian and a scholar within Churches of Christ. And he is in love with the church, uh, but sees needs for the church to implement some things that it hasn't always uh, implemented... And he tells this story about his wife being on a backpacking trip in Colorado. My wife, Holly, sometimes tells of the summer several years ago when she went backpacking in the Colorado Rockies with a group of 12 novice backpackers. A group of teens from the church had needed another adult sponsor for their trip. Holly had never been on a wilderness backpacking trip, and so she had naively said yes. For three months, she had jogged and exercised, trying to get her body in shape. The trek began at Big Meadows Reservoir, elevation 9,000 feet. Her pack, stuffed with enough food and gear for a six-day trip, weighed about 30 pounds. Led by an experienced wilderness guide named Jim, they set out in early morning for the Continental Divide. The trail was almost all uphill. Switchback after switchback led to more upward climbs. Hour after hour they walked. Bone-deep weariness began to set in. Unprepared muscles were assaulted and stretched to the limit. The novice backpackers more and more turned to their guide for hope and solace. Don't you think it's just another half mile or so, they would say. And do we get to go downhill soon? Just when they thought they could not go another step, it began to rain. They pulled out all their rust orange ponchos and tried to stay dry. Soggy shoes and socks began to make sad, squishy noises. Holly later said that the day's hike was the most exhausting, straining, humiliating experience of her life. As my body deteriorated, my mind slowly began to grind down to its basest level, she remembered. I wanted to scream, and I burst into tears. But I didn't want to become one of Jim's, quote, pathetic backpacker, unquote, stories. Late in the afternoon, after being on the trail for eight hours, they arrived at the first day's campsite. They pitched their tents in the drizzle. Everything was damp, shoes, socks, clothing, hair. Not only was Holly physically exhausted, but she was hungry 
and she was frustrated. Now, I'll just pause and say, most of you know exactly what this lady's talking about. You've been there. You've had an experience like this. I can remember times camping on the West Coast with our family when our children were little, and it was sometime. I mean, camping's supposed to be this fun family experience, but so often it turned into one of these events, and it was just miserable. Although, I must say, with great memories. Not only was Holly physically exhausted, but she was angry and frustrated. Her mind could think only of abandoning this crazy trip and getting back home. She crawled into her sleeping bag, trying to get warm and trying to make it all go away. And except for a brief excursion for a supper of freeze-dried food, she stayed there all night. The drizzle stopped around dark, and some of the other hikers emerged from their tents to see if they could start a fire. They eventually rounded up enough dry wood to build a sizable blaze. They gathered around it and began to warm themselves, chattering and laughing. Several called out to Holly to come join them around the fire, but she didn't. She wouldn't. She had created her own little igloo, and she stayed there, still damp, shivering, nursing her wounds, unable to sleep. Holly could see the shadows of the others as they huddled around the fire and could hear their subdued joy as they moved in the circle of its warmth. The flames eventually burned down, and everyone, everyone except Holly, went to their tents warm and dry. But Holly never got warm and never went to sleep. Damp and cold and angry, she lay there all night, her mind concocting irrational plans to escape and get back home. You may well have been there. I have, uh, I have been there. I have been in exactly that kind of situation, and it's a miserable experience. But in this case, what obviously made Holly, I'm sure, twice as miserable was the fact that she was sensing that glow from the fire and looking out at those shadows and hearing that laughter and that joy and realizing that those people who were around the fire, who for whatever reason decided to get out of their sleeping bags and go warm up, were experiencing something that counteracted what she was experiencing. And for whatever reason, she decided to stay in her sleeping bag and she wouldn't get out and go join them. And because she didn't join them, she never experienced at all the joy that they experienced. And so what, for many of them, probably turned into a fairly pleasant time, for her, for her never really became what it could be. Now this is interesting, and, and the reason he uses the story the way that he does is to tell the story about the churches of Christ and our history. And he talks specifically about the gift of the Holy Spirit and the way that the Holy Spirit works in the life of the church. He, he describes the kind of spirituality that we sometimes have experienced. And I don't know how many of you would know this, uh, just very briefly, we had at least one major figure in our past, Alexander Campbell, who, when he talked about the Holy Spirit, talked about the Holy Spirit in very... Um, how should I say this? Um, I, I want to use the word truncated. He, like he, he cut off the ministry of the Spirit from being what it really could be. It's like the Spirit wants to live in the church and be this dynamic force and power in the lives of Christians. And Campbell, because he lived in the day that he did, couldn't see anything really, in the ministry of the Spirit, other than the writing of Scripture. And so Campbell said, the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, but then after that, the Holy Spirit is like a retired author. He kind of left and retired, and he gave us a great book to read. 
Well, that is unfortunate because although Campbell was a fine biblical student and a great preacher and all of that, that is not at all the limits of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. There's just so much more there that the Spirit could do and should do in the life of the church. This is interesting because we just got done studying the book of Acts. We went all the way through the book of Acts and we are small groups and uh, the preaching on Sunday morning. We focused on, on the church and what it could be and the Holy Spirit was so much part of what the church was doing. We, could, we saw that over and over again as the Spirit was dynamic in the life of the church. And sometimes in our history, the Spirit has not been dynamic and alive in the life of the church the way the Spirit needs to be. And so we need to do something about that. Here's a quote from N.T. Wright. I don't know if you ever read Tom Wright, but he's one of the most popular Christian authors today, uh, has written scads of books, and it's always good stuff. If you want to read something good, although prepare yourself to be challenged, read something by Tom Wright. He says this, The early Christians, soon after Jesus' ascension, began to experience God in a way previously only known in very limited circles, particularly among prophets and other great leaders of God's people. They experienced God living within them, coming upon them like a new wind given to their own breath, like a fire that burned without consuming them. And this new life was stamped with a recognizable character. It was the life of Jesus himself. The risen Christ had gone from their sight, but as he had promised, a wind from God came and took possession of them, and they knew that this wind or breath or spirit was the living presence of the living God, the God that they had come to see and most clearly had seen in Jesus. And so this breath or this wind or this fire, this force comes to the life of the church in a dynamic, powerful way. And N.T. Wright says, this is the thing that set the Christians apart from everybody else who'd gone before them. And I absolutely agree. We've talked before about how John the Baptist came. And he said, there's going to be one who comes after me. And when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in many ways, I think that's the almost defining line between our faith and all that's gone before. It's the presence of the Spirit in the life of those who are Christian. When the Spirit comes in, He does something new and different and dynamic that has never been done before. And the church needs to understand that and live out its life in the Spirit in that way. Now, what I've done here is I've just assembled a a list, and I'm I'm going to go through this very quickly, of the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit has done in the church and is going to do in the church. And, you know, when we think of the Holy Spirit, what we tend to do is we think of Acts chapter 2. We think, okay, the Holy Spirit came uh, upon the apostles and they spoke in tongues. And then since then, in our lives as Christians, it's been kind of a controversy. What does the Spirit do? And we think, well, he, in some cases, he makes us speak in tongues. And, but then what after that? And what do we do with him? We know that he inspired Scripture. But what after that. And so here are some things the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's ministry. He raised Jesus from the dead. It says that in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus was raised by the Spirit from the dead. 
the gifting of the church for ministry. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You could look there. And, and Ephesians chapter 4, Romans chapter 12. All kinds of description of what the Holy Spirit does in terms of gifting the church for ministry. The gifting of leaders for leadership. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and following talks specifically about that. The fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and following. We're very familiar with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all those kinds of things that the Spirit does in the life of the Christian. The inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, Clearly, the Holy Spirit worked within the scriptures to author and bless the word that we have. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, we'll talk about that. Um, the gift of revelation and understanding. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 and 20 talks specifically about that gift and the spirit doing that. Paul prays that you might have a spirit of revelation among you. The power of the spirit that is offered to us for witnessing this in Acts chapter 1 in verses 5 and in verse 8 talks about the witness of the spirit. The power of the spirit that's offered there for sanctification. Romans chapter 8 uh, talks all about how the spirit empowers us to be holy and be all that we can be. The blessing of being sealed as God's children. You'll find that in Ephesians chapter 1, the sealing that comes to us. The spirit puts his stamp on us and says, you are the children of God. We continue, the unity that only the spirit can supply. That's in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 3. You'll see the unity of the spirit uh, through the bond of peace. Being the presence of Christ in the world, in the church, and in individual believers. Jesus said numerous times in, Romans, or in John 14, 15, and 16 that I'm going to send my comforter, and he's going to be my presence. Unless I leave, then he can't come. And so Jesus says, I'm leaving so that he can come and be my presence in the world. Working through the gospel to convert. He says the same thing about convicting the world of sin and changing the hearts of men. Convicting the world of sin again. Uh, all of that is in John 14, 15, 16. Interceding when Christians pray is in Romans chapter 8. Uh, that great passage that says that when we uh, have groans too deep for words, that the Spirit comes and intercedes between ourselves and God. He guided the apostles into all truth. That's in John 14, 15, and 16. And has blessed the church with truth. And then he brought understanding about Jesus, bringing glory to Jesus. And that's also in John 14, 15, and 16. So I don't know... If a list like that, and I, I just did this off the top of my head. I, you know, I didn't read a book that had, where somebody has some catalog of all the things that the Spirit does. I just sat down and said, well, what does the Spirit do? And verses just started coming to mind, and I wrote all these things down, thinking, well, these are the things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church. But these are not the kind of things that we always think about. Sometimes the Spirit for us is a bit nebulous in terms of his ministry and the way that he works in the life of Christians, and that's a tragedy. So what we want to do over the next few weeks is talk about spiritual life. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be, in this sense, Christian even? For the Holy Spirit to operate in the life of of Christians and within the church so that we can be a different people empowered and blessed by the presence of Christ through the presence of the Spirit within us. I'm absolutely convinced that the Bible teaches that there is an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of believers. Well, what does that mean for us? How do, how do we experience that? What does, it, what does it bring into our lives? Is anything at all different in your life because the Holy Spirit is present and part of your existence? That's a good question. 
Is anything different in your life because of the presence of the Holy Spirit within you? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the text goes on to say, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life, which means that all of those who gave themselves to Jesus and were baptized in the name of Christ have received the Holy Spirit, whether we knew it or not. That's a promise from God. And if that's the case, if the Holy Spirit has entered our lives, even if we don't know it, then there is a powerful resource indwelling within us, ready and able and willing to do things in our lives beyond what is normal, beyond what is just human. We have a supernatural presence within us. It wasn't that long ago that... A woman came to me and she said, you know, I am not a happy person. Things are not good for me. This is a person who's a Christian and she's been a Christian for a while. I am not a happy person. Things are not good for me. I want things to be different. And she has tried various things to make life for her different, but finds herself miserable. She finds herself at times depressed and feels like her Christianity is not taking her anywhere. Well, I find that horribly sad because that's not at all the way that we're supposed to be in Jesus. God didn't send his son to die for us to keep us the same so that nothing would change, where we would be exactly where we were with or without him. Something is supposed to be drastically different within us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know and I know, and I, I mean, I'm case number one for this. There are times in my life when I do not allow the Holy Spirit to minister and work in my life the way that he should. Anybody else like that? Boy, that is so true with me. Like there are times when I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, do I have any spiritual bones in my body at all? Am I at all what I'm supposed to be in Jesus? And when it's like that, those are the times when I need to be asking myself questions about the Holy Spirit and his presence. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, if we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that means, I think, that we can be unfilled. We can be emptied of the Holy Spirit. And it's possible for a Christian to be at times really filled up And then at times, for the Spirit to kind of be drained out. And that is not God's responsibility. God doesn't take away and give His Spirit at a whim. Instead, He's like a huge water tank where there is always the pressure there, just waiting. As long as that valve is open, the water is coming out because that's the way gravity works. It pulls the water out of the tank. 
But we tend to be people who crank that valve down or open that valve right up. And the amount of attention we give to the presence of the Spirit, I think, is oftentimes what controls that valve. Are we there with our minds? In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And when you set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, then the Holy Spirit is alive and available and ready to work. But if your mind isn't set there, then you have to expect that you've cranked that valve down and limited the flow. And what I find with the presence of the Holy Spirit is that when you just open it up a little bit, boy, he loves to come. And as soon as he starts to feel that sense of that valve opening up a little bit, he starts to work. And it's almost like he begins to push on that valve a little bit himself and to open it up because he wants very much for that valve to be open and for Christians to have the fullness of his spirit living within them. And that's exactly what this lady needs. She needs to take an opportunity to open up that valve a little bit and to start to experience the blessing of God pushing that water his spiritual life through. And it can happen. And so we're going to look at that over the next few weeks. This morning, very quickly, we're going to look at a few passages that I think are really important for us to understand. The Holy Spirit's ministry as parakletos. You've heard the word paraclete probably. That's the way we usually say it in English. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. The Greek word simply means advocate or counselor or comforter. And it says that the Holy Spirit comes from God to comfort and bless as an advocate, a counselor. We sometimes have said this is a lawyer, but lawyers are kind of, well, you know how they are. We've got some lawyers in here. And so the Holy Spirit is different than a lawyer in that he's bringing life. Not that lawyers don't want to bring life. But the Holy Spirit has this sense of bringing something to the life of a Christian where he is great blessing and help. Lawyers don't always love us. And they may give counsel, but it's not always loving counsel. The Holy Spirit gives loving counsel. Lawyers bring great counsel, but they often don't have spiritual counsel. The Holy Spirit brings Spiritual counsel. The Holy Spirit brings living counsel. The kind that speaks to the heart and the spirit in a significant way. And this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So look at these passages. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18. Turn in your Bibles to John 14. We're just going to read these through real quick. And God's going to bless us just with this notion of the paraclete. And in each one of these passages, the paraclete is specifically mentioned Uh, Until the end there, and I'll mention that. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 18 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Listen to that language. I'm going to give a counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives in you and will be, uh, lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wow. There is a sense of, of presence there on the part of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian that is powerful. 
Verse 25, as you go down through that chapter, says, All things I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. And the context for this is that clearly the Spirit is the one who is bringing this peace. Peace I live with you. I leave with you. My peace I give you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Are you worried about something? Maybe what you need is the blessing of the Holy Spirit in your life to take away that anxiety. John chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And so the Spirit specifically brings a message and news about Jesus. And is there anything more blessing, more comforting than good thoughts and news about who Jesus is? John chapter 16, verse 7 says, But I tell you the truth, it's good for you that I'm going away. Jesus is going away? That's good? How can it possibly be good that Jesus is going away? Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. And so each verse there in the Gospel of John includes that word paraclete and gives us information about what the advocate or the counselor or the comforter is going to do in the life of the Christian. And then I mentioned Matthew 5, 4 here. We all know this verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And the word comfort there is the verbal form of parakletos. And so it's the same word. In fact, this may be a stretch, but I think it's quite reasonable to say that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted by the Holy Spirit, the comforter. That makes sense to me. The text doesn't say that specifically, but I think that makes sense, that the Holy Spirit will come and bring comfort. And then Philippians chapter 2 simply says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit. Now listen to this again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. Well, how are we united with Christ? Unity with Christ takes place through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's encouragement there. If any comfort from his love. And then he links this together with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If any fellowship with his spirit. It's almost like Paul is saying, with the fellowship of the spirit, there is a comfort that's going to come. There's encouragement that's going to come because of the fellowship that we have with the Holy Spirit. Well, all of that is of incredible blessing to the church. If we open our our eyes and our minds, our lives, into what the Spirit wants to do uh, in the church. And then there's this passage that John read earlier, but I'll just read again. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of, our, and of Jesus our Lord. And so he's praying for, for peace there to be a part of the church. And it leads him into this discussion of what it means to live this life in Jesus and says... 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He's given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate, He says, look at this language, so that you might participate in the divine nature. Participation in the divine nature. You know, sometimes we dream about, um, about being someone great. I, I must not be the only one who ever has this, this kind of dream. You know, where uh, you want to stand on the Olympic podium. You know, you're the one who wants to, to hoist the Stanley Cup and make sure that your name is on there. Uh, today, this afternoon, there are all kinds of golfers who are going to be trying to get their name on the, the cup that goes along with the U.S. Open. And they're all hoping that Tiger continues to go downhill. Well, those of us who watch on TV, there's a sense in which, wouldn't you say, that there is some identification with that, or at least a, a, a sense of trying to get that. I, I can have tears come to my eyes when someone hoists the cup. Now, that's kind of strange. I don't know these people. But there is something vicarious, we use that word to describe, what happens when someone else experiences that moment of triumph. And I have a feeling that in my own life, it's going to happen even as my grandson does things. And I'm going to experience some kind of vicarious identification with that grandson and what he does. Well, that's all vicarious. That all happens removed. I'm not really there. I can watch on TV, but I'm not hoisting any cups. Come on, Kelly. Don't kid yourself. You're not skating around on the ice. You're not standing on the podium getting the medal put around your neck. So there's no reason for the tears. That's all kind of silly. In this case, it's not vicarious. In this case, it's real. We get to experience, Peter says, the divine nature. We can participate in the divine nature. As God's Spirit lives within us and does something to the human heart that simply cannot happen any other way. He lifts us up and makes Him one with us. And we're going to be talking about that over the next few weeks. Would you all stand? I'd like to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to continue with our morning. Let's pray. Lord God, I'd pray that the words that we see in Scripture this morning will live in us, that they will become part of us. Father, help us to recognize the presence of your Spirit in our lives. Help us to experience transformation. Help us to experience renewal. Help us to know what it means to be filled and overflowing with the presence of your Spirit. Father, we sometimes we clamp down the flow. Help us to open it wide open. Fill us and bless us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.